Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Um, this class uh, and the next, this class and chapter, I'm breaking it down into two parts. Um, I did make a designation on the website portion of the Truth and Happiness book. I don't know if anybody's reading. Now, Matt, this this particular instructed study is based on a book that I wrote called The Truth of Happiness. Um, it's available here, but it's also available for free on, free online. You can read the chapters before class if you want. So I'm going to start about a third of the way into this, and I'm going to read about a third of the chapter. And this follows our uh, our study. We first looked at jhana meditation, then the four foundations of mindfulness, which is the foundation for all of Dhamma practice. Uh, then we looked at the four noble truths, what we're hoping to gain um, an understanding of. That the whole practice is understanding four noble truths through the Eightfold Path. The last three classes were on uh, the Eightfold Path broken down into um, uh, wisdom, virtue, and concentration. Uh, the Eightfold Path is usually delineated that way. So now we're going to look at um, the three marks of existence These in this two weeks, um, primarily focused on Anicca and Anatta, impermanence and the not-self characteristic, because it is the misunderstanding of those two um, that leads to dukkha. Um, there's also, we'll, we'll get into a good explanation of what dukkha really means. Uh, and then the, the class, two classes from now, we'll look at dependent origination and that, that week or class or chapter will be broken down into two weeks too. And then we'll look at the five clinging aggregates, the ongoing personal experience of suffering. Okay, I'm gonna start, uh, again, I said about a third of the way through this chapter. Is anybody, Laura, are you following along with me? Mm-hmm. Are you hoping to? So I'm starting, I don't know what page it is, but it starts with impermanence as the pervasive overarching experience of all life. If you wanna to try to find that. Probably a third of the way through this chapter. Impermanence is the pervasive, overarching experience of all life in the phenomenal world. It's something that is obvious or should be obvious to all of us, but we still create um, permanent fantasies in our mind about ourselves, about really more specifically about our ego self. We do believe that we can establish a self that is permanent in some way in a world that everything is permanent, and most importantly, us. We're not permanent. We, we, we are born into a physical life. We get a, a certain amount of time and then we're gone. And what we do with that time is what is most important. So we can either waste that entire time from birth to death by chasing after things that the ego personality wants, which is a fantasy, meaning it's fantastic. It has no basis in reality. Or we can take to the Dhamma and understand what it means to be living in this present moment, which is uh, the only moment we can ever be present for. And human life is a is a um, an aggregate, if you will, of all of those moments. So 
our power resides in the moment, not in the past and in the future. We can't do anything about those. Human beings don't live in the past or the future. We live right here and right now. And in that present moment, impermanence is always intervening. And that is what proves stressful because we create this ego personality, this fixture in this impermanent world that we hope to maintain. Whatever my view of self right now is, I want you to see that. That's what's most important, not the reality of this moment. And through the Dhamma, we shed all of that and we learn to simply be a calm and peaceful reference point to what's occurring, to watching impermanence unfold in front of us without taking any of it personal. It's a pretty good deal. By clinging to the form of an ego self, stress is experienced within the environment of impermanence through perception and feeling and reactive and discursive thinking. The ego personality establishes and maintains itself by clinging to impermanent objects, events, views, and ideas. It is your ego personality that is subject to unhappiness and stress. So if we can understand and shed this ego personality, we're also shedding unhappiness and stress, or at least our contributions to, to stress or dukkha. The ego personality is associated with a physical form that is interpreted through consciousness. So if that consciousness is resting in reality, then what we're interpreting is reality. If that consciousness is rooted in a fabrication driven by an ego personality, all we're ever experiencing is, is a fabrication of what's occurred. We're, we're not quite living that life. We're not quite seeing it clearly. And so stress arises. And this happens with people, events, uh, and ideas. And it happens all the time. We struggle with our own ideas. We hope to fit our ideas into our personality rather than the other, other way around which is when we're a reference point to what's occurring, our ideas and our subsequent ideology are based on this reality, not what we hope reality would be. And so there's no stress in that. This, co this combination of consciousness and form in the Dhamma is known as Nama Rupa, the Pali or Sanskrit is Nama Rupa. Nama Rupa means name and form. This is one of the one of the big misunderstandings and they, they apply all kinds of they meaning modern buddhism applies a lot of magical or mystical connotations to this simple explanation name or nama which is um, conscious identity or identification as an ego personality is the mental or physical factor of an ego self and rupa form is the physical factor our physical body and then the physical world we live in this mental physical the mental this mental physical self is an aggregate of five impermanent phenomenal aspects that together comprise what is called the self. And we refer to that as the five clinging aggregates that we're going to get to in three weeks. There is nothing permanent about any individual aspect of the five aggregates, nor in the combination of all five. These five factors are known as the five clinging aggregates, physical form, feeling, the perception that feelings drive, Mental fabrications that are formed from perceptions. This is a, 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 a solidification of our views of self, mental fabrication, all resting in consciousness. So whatever our consciousness holds in mind, excuse me. Whatever our consciousness holds in mind, which is what mindfulness means, will determine our experience of life. And we can hold in mind anything. We have the, the, the freedom and the mental capacity to hold any view of self and any view of the world. We can get into deep hysterical 
and fantastical views of the world and still live in it, um, that usually characterizes some form of mental illness. But we're all living in some kind of fantastical view or a fabricated view of the world until we take to the Dhamma, develop jhana meditation so our minds are quiet enough to recognize what we're doing to ourselves in this moment by this consciousness that is informing the other aggregates. So if we can develop a consciousness that is simply resting on what is occurring in this moment through concentration and refined mindfulness, now we're living a human life as it's intended to be, meaning we're present for it. And that's the great gift of the Dhamma, to actually be present for our human life, instead of being distracted by our own ignorance of Four Noble Truths and constantly grasping after or avoiding things that we think are necessary to maintain this ego personality. The five clinging aggregates, again, is explained in a couple of weeks in more detail. Anatta is the, is the word the Buddha used to describe what is commonly referred to as the self to be anatta, which means not a self. And what the Buddha is teaching there, let me just read it. He is simply pointing out that through, that though firmly entrenched in the human psyche through common agreement and support, the belief in an ego self is an ignorant view and leads to endless confusion and suffering. Any further establishment of self-identity identity in any form or any realm, which is another aspect of modern Buddhism and many modern um, uh, spiritual practices, living in, in some kind of um, fabricated reality, usually in the future, um, physical or non-physical, will only lead to more confusion and suffering. The, what the Buddha is teaching, what we're teaching here, is we only have one human life. And that's the life to be lived. Not This life is not a preparation for another life. Because when we do that, which is what most people that believe in salvation do, I'll, I'll get through this suffering type of life and get to my reward in some type of heaven. And almost every religion teaches that, by the way, rather than what the Buddha taught. And the Buddha come, came across those views. You, you remember in the, um, the Nagara Sutta and other suttas, the common belief during the Buddhist time was much like the common belief in our time that salvation is necessary for human beings. When the Buddha, his great insight was, this is the moment we're alive and only this moment. We have one human life that is to be lived. And he was, he emphasized that throughout his teachings to wake up now, meaning to gain full human maturity now. This is a process, but it's not a lengthy process. It's a process that some of us can complete in a few years, I would say. I mean, some people take to the Dom and get it and um, gain full understanding in a, a few months. But they, typically, if we engage in the Dhamma and put our effort in, it is assured that we will awaken but it depends on our right effort. That's part of the Dhamma. The Buddha, Lord, do you have something to say? No. Oh, I'm sorry. Just listening intently. The Buddha's teaching on, that's how we, are you all listening intently there? See, Matt goes away. Just <laughs> so we're teaching intently. Still listening. <laughs> I'm just picking on you, Matt. The Buddha's teaching on what con constitutes a self has taken on confusing and misleading esoteric, magical, and mystical interpretations. 
we do that to ourselves because of, we, we, I often say, teach it this way, because the common human problem is self-loathing. We think we're just not good enough. And so we start attaching all kinds of ideas on what's going to make me whole, make me real, make me relevant, make people love me, make me make a lot of money in this world, get a lot of power, rather than just be a human being. And all of those other things might follow. You might be a human being that has a certain type of life that is filled with a lot of acquisition, except you don't take it personally. Or you might be the type of human being that leads a very um, common life, if you will, never gains a lot of notoriety or a lot of money or a lot of things or a lot of big houses. The same Dhamma applies and the same common peaceful mind can be developed no matter where we are in our life. And it happens in this moment. It has nothing to do with what's going on outside in our life, our outer situation. Although as we develop the Dhamma, our outer situation may change or we may see it differently. Matt's a good example of that. We're just talking about that. It's fitting, fitting the Dhamma into a very, very busy life. And we do the best we can. And everybody's practice is different in that way. But we all meet and practice the Eightfold Path. Excuse me. That's what unites us all, and that's what makes our sangha work. You know, we don't get into a lot of other things. We agree when we walk through the door. Matt, you agreed. You didn't know you did. That we're we're only practicing this eightfold path. We're not getting into this or that. And it's okay to get into this or that, but outside of this room and outside of this dhamma. I wish uh, Jen still here. She could talk about that a little bit, but she's not so she won't. Anatta means not self or non-self. I don't like that non-self, but. Um, and refers to that which is abandoned through understanding and developed four noble truths. It would be and is confusing to attempt to describe a concept of self without the context of developing understanding of the four noble truths. In other words, without that context of I'm a human being, I'm a self, but living within an understanding of these four noble truths, that stops me from grasping after needing this self to be more, because now I understand what it means to be a human being to simply be an impersonal reference point to what's occurring. And that is what makes life meaningful, moment by moment, rather than always grasping after the next thing, always have to have more. Because we never can satisfy this ego personality. It's insatiable. And it's insatiable because it's a fabrication. It, it does not have a foundation such as the four foundations on which to rest. We treat ourselves as, as an ego personality, something that is simply floating around like those balloons we're talking about and somebody's going to shoot us down. There's nothing to it. And that's why we're always having to add to it because we know there's nothing to it. We know this is a fabrication. And that's the tension that we carry from one moment to the next or we can take to the Dharma and awaken and shed that tension. The Buddha consistently avoided this, meaning... Um, satisfying the ego personality which is really what most religions are about keeping it keeping it happy and keeping it going in one place the buddha consistently avoided this as it would prove to be a distraction to his stated purpose not self simply refers to an insubstantial and impermanent ego personality that is mistaken as a substantial and permanent individual identity there's nothing to it not self refers to the impermanence and insubstantiality of the ego personality. This insubst the insubstantiality of the ego self 
It's obscure, obscured by the preoccupation of maintaining autotype and not self-characteristic within the impermanent environment of stress. It simply can't be done, yet we keep doing it from birth to death. The stress and unhappiness of the ego self is an underlying characteristic of the experience of life in this phenomenal world. In short, anatta rooted in ignorance and impermanence is dukkha. Right? I'm going to read it once more. It's a short description of dukkha, but it's what we're dealing with. In short, anatta, the not self characteristic being locked into an ego personality, is rooted in ignorance and impermanence, and that is dukkha. Believing in something that, and now it makes sense, doesn't it? Does any, would anybody argue that? That believing that you're something other than, than you are would create tremendous stress, wouldn't it? Moment by moment. And that's how most of us live our lives, insisting that we're something that we're not. And that can lead to all kinds of mental illness and all kinds of um, unhealthy responses to trying to maintain this ego self, such as drug addiction, sex addiction, um, social media addiction, uh, intellectual addiction, all kinds of addiction. Anything, and by the way, maintaining an ego self is itself an addiction, isn't it? Because it's not based on any kind of reality. It's fabricated. And it will lead, lead to nothing of any true value as a human being. And that doesn't, and so the question might arise, well, what about all those people that never take to the Dhamma? And they've lived their life from birth to death in this ignorance. There is dukkha. And that's the profound understanding that the Buddha gave us. There is dukkha. As a consequence of having a human life, there will be dukkha. The, the great teaching that the Buddha taught is don't take anything personal because nothing can be. Does any, would anybody argue that? Matt, you might just because you haven't been around enough, but you could if you want. Please do so. You're, and you should, anybody is welcome to bring up anything. You don't have to agree with the teachers or the dominant. And if you don't, please bring it up. Does anybody disagree with that? That's good. You'd have my breath if you didn't. No, Shedding the ego personality by ceasing clinging to impermanent objects and ignorant views brings lasting peace and happiness. I know that's a bold statement, but that's what we're doing here. It is in the continual attempt to establish and maintain an ego self within the environment of, of impermanence that, per, that perpetuates dukkha. I'm going to skip over some of this. Creating ideas for the... Eh, now I'm going to lose the context. Some Buddhist practices do, this, do just this by overemphasis on conceptual notions of not-self and creating, creating mystical connotations to non-self and maintaining this ego personality impermanently forever and ever and ever. And that was what most of my Buddhist practice was like until I came to what the Buddha actually taught. It was always a, a future-based practice and always reinforcing that who I was in this moment wasn't good enough, that I always had to be better and better. And usually that the bettering couldn't even be expected until some future lifetime. And some practices were taught that it was endless lifetimes, but go ahead and practice anyway. And I did, even though I was very disappointed in that idea that I was going to practice for lifetimes with a hope that some future lifetime I might get it. And I didn't even know what I was getting. Some of it was taught that you'd get mystical powers. I'd be able to tell the future and tell the past and 
bilocate. And I, I and that was intriguing and exciting to me. Except I also realized, what the hell good is it? I still wanted to learn what does it mean to be a human being right here and right now? Please, Lord. John, can you just briefly explain why other or modern Buddhist practices based on that idea of togetherness and like universal consciousness are still in a way uh, perpetuating the ego personality, how that can still happen even when you're thinking you're you know, engaged in this just universal well, that, that's thanks for the question because that's that's kind of the default um, position for many people throughout the ages because we can't explain who and what we are, where we came from, where we're going. So we create this idea, and one of the most pervasive is this universal mind or one mind, or that we're all part of this collective, and that's just a, a it's a knee jerk response to an ego personality's fear of being isolated because an ego personality needs clinging to the world, doesn't it? it? Its whole view of self is based on clinging to something. And ultimately that resolves in this idea that we're all one thing. And that's that, that's kind of the pervasive new age notion too. There was even, when I was growing up, there were songs about we're on the age of Aquarius. We're all on this verge of this one world consciousness. And once that happens, we're going to be living in this utopia. And people still believe that. People still push that idea. And all it is is annihilation, isn't it? I'm giving up a mind that I'm not too sure about. And I'm, I'm full of fear, but I'm part of this grand collective, and that makes it okay. Where? Prove it to me. Really. I mean, I, I want if I'm going to believe in that now, I mean, I, I, I liked that idea for many years until I got sick of it. Again, prove it to me. How do I, how do I experience that? Would that be a permanent collective? Like, is it a denial of impermanence? It's a denial of everything, including impermanence. Sure, it is. So that there's suffering. a yeah, that there's a that there's some kind of um, permanent, and I would add ossified mind that I can be a part of that never changes and it's always here. Some people would call it would interpret that as God. Okay, but where? And I again, I like that idea until I didn't. You know, I, I had to go along with the idea that I was aspiring to cosmic consciousness because that was basically all the different Buddhist practices that I had all resolved in some form of that. So I had to buy into it if I was going to practice with them. That's called association. And the Buddha emphasizes in many suttas to choose your associations wisely. And when I was in those practices, I wasn't. Now, I will tell you, I had a great time and I met a lot of wonderful people. I met I had I met romantic relationships through that that were important so i was living a human life but i was getting more and more confused about what it meant to be a human being more and more frustrated until i came to the buddha's dhamma and said a human being if he taught something must be useful for human beings not not supernatural beings that could live forever but me right here and right now and i was i can't remember my late 20s early 30s when i had now later than that when I had this frustration and it just came to a head, I said, like, it's just nonsense what this, what I was teaching, what I was, what I was learning. And then I came across this and the Buddha said, don't be anything other than what you are in this moment, because it's all that you can ever be. 
And then it started to make sense that I was simply a reference point to what's occurring. It took me quite a while to understand that. But as I started to integrating it, I noticed that my life got better. My mind got better for the first time ever in my life. I was calm. I was more peaceful. I was more well concentrated. I wasn't fighting with people as much. And that's what I noticed. And then that's when I knew I was onto something. And just to finish that thought. And so I had this nice little practice going. And I was very content. And then Tamara in the next building asked me if I would teach a meditation class. And that changed everything. I just We had a teacher's meeting before. And as I started teaching the Dhamma, I learned more and more about it. And the, the, um, it became much broader. And I saw how it applied in all kinds of different human situations through all the classes. I mean, I, this is, I don't remember, I think this is, this is somewhere like the 1500th class. We're in, you know, that's how many classes we've had here. Um, it's a lot of classes and it's a lot of Sangha um, participation that teaches all of us, doesn't it? It's not just you listening to me. It's then our discussion afterwards that makes this whole thing work. The Buddha taught there's no Dhamma without a well-informed and well-focused Sangha, which is what we've become. Okay. Anybody have any questions, comments? Thanks, Laura. Creating yeah, ideas. I have a question, you. John. Yes, please. Uh, well, Great. I was just, I'm not arguing or anything, but I just kind of wanted some clarification around, uh, like, uh, you know, if you kind of dismiss the idea of a, of an aspect of awareness that is always present um, and free. Um, you know, it's kind of like, how, what did you think Nibbana represented? Like, what did you think that word um, was intended to mean? Or, um, Thank you. It's a great question. And, and, oh yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, go ahead. I'll I'll follow up after I hear your answer. Okay. Well, nirvana means the the literal meaning of the words means extinguished, and in reference to the dhamma, to the Buddha's dhamma, it means that we've extinguished the fires of passion, which is how he described the world in the Loka Sutta. It means we've ended eye making, and so as as that. Well, I, I, what was the first part of your question? Well, no, that yeah, that's it. I was just. Uh... It just seems like the the Buddha talks about the con oh. conditioned and the unconditioned, and then that that we're not either uh, a self and the conditioned, or you know that the unconditioned is not a self. But uh, I always thought it was kind of implied that um, it was a, a reality that allowed liberation from conditionality. You know that there was something that. Um, an alternate alternative to just uh, impersonal, imperse, uh, impermanent, yes. uh, constant becoming process. You know. Yes, that's it. wow. It's it, it, great question. That's exactly what the Buddha taught to stop the process of becoming further ignorant. And so, how do we do that? We use jhana meditation to to concentrate the mind so that we can interrupt the ongoing process 
of eye making. You mentioned that's what got me the awareness that's always present. So my awareness that's always present is my mind, my thought process. And the Dharma unites a mind in its body, which, which constitutes now a human being who is aware. But so that awareness is not something amorphous that's floating around or is a, in a, a constant state outside of me. My awareness is me. Your awareness is you. What does that awareness describe? Well, I want it to describe what's occurring in this moment without me clouding it, clouding this moment or what's occurring or obscuring it by my own fabricated views of self. I want to know what it means to be present for this moment in my life. And so that, again, going back to John and meditation so I can deepen my concentration, that allows me to unite my mind and my body in this moment and be present. It's the rest of the Dhamma, the rest of the Eightfold Path that allows us to examine our own ignorance. That's what it's for. And it takes all eight factors to do so. So does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, it does. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Great question. Where was I? All aspects of self are impermanent. And any conditioned thought or thought construct that attempts to distract from this truth is also clinging, specifically clinging to views and ideas, including the idea that I need to be better or smarter or taller or shorter or thinner or fatter or anything else. Anything that I think is wrong with me is a fabrication. That doesn't mean that if I'm, um, uh, if I'm doing things that are unhealthy, I shouldn't recognize those and change them, but I shouldn't do it with harsh judgments of self. Do it because... I'm aware that this is a better way to live. That's all. Clinging to views and ideas maintains the distraction of stress and generates additional karma. We get into karma in week 10, I think. This is why all views of self are to be recognized and abandoned. All views of self. This is the purpose of insight, to clearly recognize impermanence and all wrong views of self. The simplest way to describe the Buddhist teaching on not-self is this. Anything that the ego self clings to, whether objects, people, events, views, or ideas, or the pursuit of happiness through acquisition of objects, people, events, or ideas, will create confusion, disenchantment, and lasting unhappiness. Let them all go. In other words, the self you think you are is the self that is prone to stress and unhappiness. It is a self born of a lack of understanding and no matter what theoretical or experiential, theoretical meaning cosmic mind would be one theory, or experiential knowledge, um, another might be uh, that I need, I need salvation. I need some outside agency or entity to save my soul. We don't. We just need to live in this moment. Theoretical experiential knowledge, the non-self, the non-self acquires, it will never develop understanding. Right? We can either be grasping after stuff for our, our entire life, or we can move towards and develop understanding of four noble truths. Still another way to see this is by identification and association. The self is defined by attachments. Association is another word for attachments. We attach ourselves to the people and things that we associate with. It's Thursday night bowling league might be something that we attach to. We associate with fellow bowlers but we do that with everything today. We become 
in my lifetime, we've become ever more tribal, it seems, every day. And I don't see any end in that, except people that practice it. Oh. Who you associate with and what you associate with, including impermanent ideas or notion of an altruistic self, defines the self you will experience. This does not mean that you should have no associations. It does mean you should be mindful of all associations and to not try to make what is impermanent permanent. Do your associations support developing understanding within the framework of the Eightfold Path? That's the most important association for Dhamma practitioners. Do your associations increase your own and others' confusion and suffering through validation of yours or others' unskillful actions? And I'm, what I'm talking about could be, and really most importantly, is other so-called spiritual practices, and you continue practicing them simply because of an unexamined association. Why are you doing it? The Eightfold Path provides a highly effective framework for guiding association and focus for practice. Excuse me. The Buddha did not teach that there is no self, only that the self we have fabricated through an observable process is not worth defending or continually reestablishing. It just creates stress and suffering and confusion. Anatta, not self, refers to an ego personality that has arisen from ignorance. It is the ego personality that is prone to endless confusion and suffering. Not self has created endless views of itself that are always subject to impermanence and suffering. Insight into this one thing, that all views arising from an ego self cause, cause stress and unhappiness, will then bring lasting peace and happiness. That's all that we're dealing with here. And by the way, our next structure, structure study is going to be um, Vipassana, true insight into the three marks of existence. Within the framework of the Eightfold Path, all views of self are recognized. Within the framework of the Eightfold Path, all views of self are recognized. That's what it's for. And it, it, it's, the Eightfold Path is also a, um, a limiting path, meaning it, it limits our view enough to what is actually occurring. The Eightfold Path, as we integrate it, supports not continually grasping after more. And when we go after more, we'll recognize that it's outside of that framework of the Eightfold Path. And we'll probably recognize it's outside of the framework of either right view or the moral and ethical factors. But we also might recognize when we're, when we're in wrong intention, meaning I'm, I'm intent on grasping after, we might recognize that we're engaged in right effort, doing something that is not supportive of Dhamma practice or wrong mindfulness, holding in mind anything other than the Dhamma is wrong mindfulness, although we do it, and wrong meditation, substituting something else or not listening to the guided meditations for jhana meditation. John? Yes, Matt. Is... Developing the Eightfold Path effectively deconditioning Anatta or, or retraining Anatta to, to uh, stop reflexively grasping after everything and claiming it as 
self or mind. That's yes. That's that is the whole point of the Eightfold Path to do that one thing. Because when we do right view, right intention, right speech, all of those things are acknowledging, recognizing, and acknowledging that we're identifying with something upon contact. Yes. And and that as soon as we identify with something upon contact, we're either anatta's being employed to, to go, I like that or I don't like that. Developing the Eightfold Path is is sort of yoking that anatta process to return it to um, you could say a natural state, a, a natural true human state. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I might that, not have articulated that. No, you well. did it beautifully well. That is, that's the whole point. That, that's why we do what we do, so that we don't get stuck in that ongoing process of, of worshiping Anatta, which is really what we do. So Anatta then becomes something like the reference point. It, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's either it's either um, a refined mindfulness that is a reference point, and this is our choice, or anatta, and that really is the only choice that we have as human beings. It's acknowledging that it's that thought that it's no self, this self that is now filtered through the full path allows you to see reality, versus right. this not self that is. A delusion. It always is is kind of thought looping itself upon itself yeah. upon itself without any structure yeah. of yeah. the full path. That's what the Buddha described in the Nagara Sutra right. is just that being stuck in this feedback loop of always self-referential views rooted in ignorance, you, you and that's person, what compels us. You're a person with six properties. Yep. That are, that is seeing reality now. Yep. Yeah, everybody heard what, what every human being is and can only be is a six-property person, as taught in the Dati Vipanga Sutta, meaning the four elements, the space property and the consciousness property, something to animate this. But that's it. And there's no reason to be self-aggrandizing about the six-property person because you're all the same as me. What you do with that is what you do with it. And I can be enamored with someone who, who takes that six-property person and makes millions of dollars and gains some kind of power over other people. Or I can just understand that person who has done that is still a six property person. And if I do the same thing, I'm still a six property person. So why go through all the effort? And again, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything and we shouldn't, we, we should, the Buddha said we need, every human being needs food, four things, food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. And those are the things that we should be concerned about as far as what we need to live comfortably as human beings but those four things are exceptionally easy to acquire even today but we we want to build on that we want to add on that we want to make sure that we have more than the next person and that's where we get in trouble that's where matt's ego personality comes into play or we can live in the world and have all those things by the way as long as we don't take any of it personally and in that way, we'll develop a common, peaceful mind. We'll understand what it means to be a human being, a six-property person. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Matt. Um, Matt, Ron, do you have something?
Nope. <laughs> I want to see where I was going to go if I've got time to go that far. This might be a three class. Uh, give me just a moment. Maybe I can cut out for a minute. Let me pick this up here. Laura, were you reading along? Mm -hmm. um, I'm jumping into, let me go back to the beginning of the paragraph. It is due to the effects of stress. You see it? It is due to the effects of stress that make understanding stress paramount in the Buddhist teaching. This is really what we're gaining insight to. Because it is the preoccupation with stress that blocks awakening. It in, we see it here in our class that many people that have come and gone, it's a response to not being able to practice with the stress in their lives. It just seems like the stressors are much more important than Dhamma practice. And we've all been through that too ourselves, even those that, of us that are successfully practicing the Dhamma. It always seems like a balancing act, doesn't it, between what the world is pulling you to do and your Dhamma practice. And it's, I guess it's always like that until you're as perfect as I am. It is a preoccupation with the need to continually establish and defend the impermanent, ever-changing ego self that blocks awakening. Understanding that all things are impermanent is the key to understanding how your thinking has created the condition of stress. Understanding that all things are impermanent is the key to understanding how your thinking has created the condition of stress. Some physical objects, such as a mountain or planet or a house or a mountain, maintain a physical form for a longer period of time than a butterfly, an apple, a thought, or a human body. But all will decay, change form, and fade from existence. Anatta, not self, can only seek to establish itself in impermanent objects, views, and ideas. This is the purpose of the phenomenal world and why the ego self is so enamored with the world. And it's why we come up with notions such as cosmic consciousness or um, um, multi-life living as one entity. As long as Anatta continues to quest, confusion and, and suffering will prevail. As long as Anatta continues this quest, karma will continue. And karma is the present moment unfolding of stress. We'll get into deeper into karma in a couple of weeks. Due to unquenched desire for existence, the ego personality creates karma. Karma unfolds moment by moment as a distraction of stress and unhappiness. Through physical form, though physical form will change due to impermanence, karma continues the experience of stress and unhappiness. Karma, another way to explain the karma is just an ongoing clinging to an ego personality. And again, we'll get deeper into that. This is an important example of impermanence. Continuity is not permanence. Continuity is recurrence due to, due to repeated, repeatedly recreating the conditions leading to an experience. In this case, continued establishment of an ego self subject to confusion and suffering. Yeah, that's as far as I wanted to get to. I came to the end of part one. That's the end of tonight's teaching. Um, we'll pick it up from there next week. Let's, um, I, I hope everybody understands the, the, um, the importance I'm placing on this and in this particular class, that it really is this one thing 
that we're dealing with, even though that one thing is ourselves in the world. So it seems very complicated. It seems very um, established. It seems almost an impossible task for some of us, especially like Matt, you might seem a bit overwhelmed right now. But we take to the Dhamma one breath at a time. That's jhana practice. And that's what brings gentleness. And it's why we emphasize this, this particular study begins with jhana. But the Dhamma begins and ends in jhana practice and deepening our concentration. Why? Because as our concentration increases, we can stop ourselves from being harsh. In the beginning, it might seem a little bit harsh. Even practice might seem um, difficult and even stressful. But that quickly changed. Anybody want to talk about that, that their practice was a little stressful in the beginning and they overcame it by continued practice? Anybody, anybody, anybody? Well, I, I found it, at least the, the meditation practice, to be very stressful. Basically, I was doing it wrong. <clears throat> I, was, I was trying to, to continue my old practice, which was, you know, meditation is trying not to think. Yeah, and you did that even though you were doing this. Yeah. Because you, and, and, you were conditioned even, towards it. Yeah. yeah. Even though you told me tons of times that you know, this is what it is. And the guys' meditations were there. And still, this, this really deeply rooted uh, wrong view was there. And uh, it took a long time to, to shed that. But it did. It's but a very, it yeah. very strong, yeah. I'm saying it was a very strong conditioned aspect of your mind. Mm -hmm because of the vested interest that you already had in it, the oh, time yeah. you put in. And that's what a lot of us have trouble overcoming an old meditation practice. I'm so glad you brought this up. Because I had it for probably four years, yep. you know, in one form or another. But, you know, uh, the reason I went out, the reason that I went out away from my, my family and, and everything and went on the road and, and traveled to, to India was because I wanted to stop thinking. Yeah. I had too busy a mind. Yeah, isn't that incredible that a human being would not want to think? But a lot of us do that, right? Well, that was, it, it it's was a common practice. Yes, it was overwhelmed. Yep, that was what my practice was too. Even at the, the, the seven and 10 day long sashins, the whole point of it was to get to a state of nothingness. And that's annihilation, isn't it? But I was eagerly and grasping after that. Anyway, so What's that? And I never got there anyway. Yeah. So it was just frustrating. Yeah. You uh, can't be. Well, you, it's, it's an unnatural state. You can't get there. But you can fool yourself into it. Thank you for bringing it up. That is such an important point. This is, this is the practice that we, if you're going to be a Dhamma practitioner, it's jhana and it's nothing else. And, you know, we're fortunate that some genius put up some, some guided meditations on the website and, and they're there for you. <laughs> Brian, what do you think? Uh, I do enjoy the genius guided meditations. I've been using them. My favorite student. You're, you're, as Matt said earlier, you're also in my head now on a loop, I think. So, um, uh, it's similar, maybe tacking on a bit to what what matt said that this this ego anatta ego personality is, is this this collection of impermanent experiences that we either liked or didn't like and it is constantly just bouncing from one thing to the next to the next to the next because it, it can't be anything other than impermanent itself yet you know yeah. there, there's a thing there too about of course it's hard to see it at first because it is us 
in, in all things that we we encounter the first time are hard to understand because it takes time to develop the understanding. And this is no different that it just takes time in the practice. It takes yeah. time in jhana to develop the concentration, to see the ego bouncing from one, one object to the next object, to the next object, to the next. And, and once yeah. you start to see that the, the energy or the power that that ego has just starts to deflate. Yeah. There's um, nothing to it. There's nothing to it. And it's, it's this yeah. fabrication that you're pumping your livelihood into that there's just no need to pump your livelihood into because you you're existing just fine without it. All that's yeah. doing is, is coloring the world in a way that's often painful, stressful, and unhappy. So thank you. Beautifully said, Brian. Thank you. Jeff, good evening. Good evening, John. Um, yeah, no, I was thinking about your, your comment about uh, annihilation of self and how that can take a lot of different forms. It can take annihilation through uh, different kinds of meditation. Um, it it can it can take the form of annihilation by addictions or even lifestyles. Um, and uh, you, it's it seems as though you see it in every direction. Um, it, in fact, it's hard. It's hard to go through life without viewing most of what you see as some form of annihilation for most of the people participating in it. Um, I find that you know the the setting I work in, for example, um, it's almost as though people uh, are constantly attempting to pull you into their their uh, their wrong view, as it were. Their drama, uh, yeah. Yeah, their drama all the time. Yeah. Uh, I find myself positioning myself a lot during the day, just trying to dodge that, you know, trying to... Um, I was thinking earlier that it's it's I spend my time dodging dukkha, and then it <laughs> occurred to me I could come up with a with a with a new game set of dodgeball to be dukkha ball. <laughs> <laughs> and it becomes easier to dodge it the more you understand it. Yeah. Well, you see it coming anyway. Yeah, it's gonna duck. Oh, John, did you? Uh, Thank you, Jeff. If you put a recorder in your pocket. Oh, yeah. Did you put a recorder in your pocket? Thank you, Lord. <laughs> What's that? Did you put the recorder in your pocket? Listen to yourself all day. Yeah, oh, no, I did. I did. Uh, I did. I did pay a special attention to that, though. And uh, I did manage to only comment maybe two or three times in the whole day on uh, anything that might be classified as idle speech. And I, I felt it. But, yeah, it, it really worked out pretty well. I don't know if everybody at work appreciated my my silence, but uh, but it, it contributed to a common peaceful mind for you, didn't it? For me, it certainly did. Yeah. 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 And if they would just come to class, they would develop the same mind. So, there you go. Thank you, Jeff. Mm -hmm. Adam, what do you do? You um um 
are you recognizing, I know it's early in your practice, but are you, are you recognizing um, your ego personality and maybe not reacting to it as much as you had in the past? Again, I know it's just a couple of weeks at your practice. It's pretty tough for me. That's kind of like a big one for me. So I, I got to work on it a little bit more. Yeah. Well, that, again, that's just, that's what ongoing practice is for. So good for you. Right. Glad you see it. Well, Anything else? I'm glad you joined us. We'll talk in a little bit. All right. Good evening, Drake. Hi, John. Yeah, thank you. I, I've been enjoying your book. Uh, I guess I just had a question because uh, some days are easier than others to have dispassionate mindfulness and, and witness and not be caught in. Uh, but so, like today, I was just so identified with my ego. It was just like this stream of thought and it was all self-referential and it's really unpleasant. And like, what do you think is like the most skillful or what's the best way to do that? Like, how do you uh, relate to that in a productive way? Well, it's productive that you recognize that you're doing it because I, I think you would say that there was a time in your life when you didn't recognize that. Um, and then in the moment, if you find yourself just getting caught up in the moment, take a breath and unite your mind and your body and remind yourself just as in the Bahia Sutta that this is not mine. This is not what I am. And the more you do that, for one thing, it, it should contribute immediately to a, a calmer mind and help you get out of whatever situation you are. If it's, you know, even if it's an argument, you can remind yourself that what the other person is saying has nothing to do with you. And it doesn't as long as you don't take it personal. But anything, anytime you notice a distraction or an agitation or even a reaction, you know that you're reacting from an ego personality rather than a calm and peaceful mind, rather than simply a reference point to what's occurring. But again, I would say the most important thing is that you recognize that it's occurring to you because without that recognition, there can be no renunciation of it. So it's a it's a good development that you see it, and ongoing Dhamma practice will help you resolve that issue. Sounds but, good. Yeah, and you follow what I'm saying. I think you do, but I'm not. I don't mean that. Yeah. No, I do. I, I yeah. Do. Good. Yeah. Thanks. So, I mean, so I do repeat that it's impermanent, not self, but uh, um, and take it not take it personal, and but I still uh. The, sometimes the habit is so strong that it just keeps repeating itself over and over. Yeah, but, uh, and that's how strong a conditioned mind becomes, but it will uh, yield to ongoing Dhamma practice. Uh -huh. you know, but it, it, I guarantee it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, 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 honestly, I don't know. I have, I have yet to meet anybody who has done this as we present it that hasn't developed um, a great measure of common peace. You know, it's, it just it just happens to us. So and I, I think I noticed some changes in you, Drake, just in the in the kind of the questions that you're asking and how you're how you're phrasing them. that it's developing in you as well. So good for you. Uh, if you ever want to have a conversation again, just let me know. You know we'll, we'll set up a Zoom session or something. Thank you, Drake. Jane, I didn't pick on you first. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I appreciate what everybody's had to say so far. Um, for me, my greatest, well, one of my fabrications was the egocentric notion that I should be able to change things, fix things for myself, 
And uh, I had the arrogance to think I should be able to fix things for other people too. Yeah. And uh, the gift of the Dhamma was that now I realize that's not, that's not living. So it took that burden away from me and now I can just live life. Yeah. Fixing me, myself or others is not living. I like the way you no. said that. Great. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. Good evening, Laura. Oh. You're up. Here's Laura. <laughs> da, 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 da. Thank you for uh, not much more to say really. I just really what stuck with me in particular in this class was when you were talking about um, how it's amazing how we intuitively know that the ego personality is is really insubstantial, you know, no matter how much we might lock into it, cling to it, because that's evident from you know, the stress, physical stress or tension or um, sadness that we might feel. Yeah. But, you know, it's when we, you know, when we cling to what is ephemeral, that's, that's what happens. But rather than just kind of being with it and letting it arise and pass away. Yeah. So. That's it. Thank you, Laura. Matt, you don't have to, nobody has to talk here, but if you'd like to, I'd like to hear what you have to say about your experience tonight. How was, how was your meditation? Were you able to follow along with us? So I've meditated a few times before, and um, so I get the gist of it, uh, but for the 20 minutes here, it was more just finding a comfortable position, yeah. and then when I found it, it was 20 minutes. <laughs> so better luck next time. But I know, I know, I've been able to meditate before. Yeah. Not, uh, I don't know to what quality because it's never been anything official. Now it's official. Good certification <laughs> yeah. and everything. Yeah, it is. You're you're an official jhana meditator now. Yeah, good to know. I hope you join us again. What did you think of the class? Did, did it make any sense to you? A lot of sense. Oh, uh, good. So I thought it was seemingly random. I finally made it here for this session that I've been trying for many months. Um, this was a good one to begin on, even though it's kind yeah, of deep. But. A lot of things struck a chord with me. Oh. A lot of things. Good. So uh, a lot of food for thought, and I'll process it as the, the days goes on. Yeah, good. That's that's Dharma practice. I'm, I'm glad you joined us. Um, if you go to the website, uh, or you, if you just scroll down, you actually there's a link on top to sign up for our newsletter. And I send that out three times a week just to give you an idea of what the classes are going to be like so you can read the sutta beforehand and links to the past recent classes if you want to catch up um, but our practices meditate twice a day using the guided meditations on the website i would suggest you start with uh, five minutes twice a day and just see how that feels and if you want to increase it increase it um, but twice a day meditation is much more important than one long session uh, so just break it up to that you know, every in about every 12 hours um, and then read along with us and study on the website and come to our classes and uh, we're so pleased to have you with us. So thank you, thank you Matt. Tell my teacher wrong. <laughs> Uh-oh, notes. <laughs> yeah, notes. Um, Someone, you know, one person did their homework. Yeah, as... last night I was, uh, I was actually, um, I had some time to study and um, in your in the 
little sub-chapter on uh, Ananda, um, you wrote this in two lines that really got me going. Hmm, stunning, huh? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of brilliant things. Um, you said there, from wrong view, you perceive yourself through contact with the sixth sense base as the perceiver. And all perceived phenomena as outside of this perceiver. Oh. That is brilliant. Therefore, you must have a separate existence from the phenomena that appear outside of this perceiver. And I realized that this is that first fabrication that the yes. origination talks about. Yes, yes, yes. It's the, that's the view that starts going out there. I'm out there. Right. And you're not. So, but then comes the fact that this perceiver automatically sees itself as permanent. Yeah. It has to, because otherwise it has no validity for, for right. a mind. Yeah. A fabrication needs permanence right. in, a, in an impermanent world. But this so-called permanent perce perceiver is generated by contact with impermanent phenomena. <laughs> so here we are up against the wall right away. There's stress. So this, I call it like an existential stress is inevitable at this point. To create hers. And yes. it's actually a frustration because we can't do what we want to do. Or 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 understand what the hell is going on. Or understand and this what started the first time we came out of a cave and looked up and said, Holy, what, what's going on? Right. But we're trying to do something that is not possible to do. So the the the, the core stress of life is right here. And it's always been there since, since the beginning of humanity. Yeah, right and, and, and yeah, and, I, and there's been times where I tried to think, well, you know, when did we start, you know, doing this stupid shit? And the it's first like, time no, the saber to tiger. This is how the mind works. Yep. <laughs> so, and this frustration is what gives rise to craving. Because we want these things to be different than they are. We want them to be permanent. And we we want, don't want them to be unpermanent. And we want more of that, too. So at that point, greed and aversion arise. Or if wanting to be different than they are doesn't, doesn't work, then we just see them differently than they are. Yes. So there's delusion. Yeah. Right there. And we, we created... And, there you go. And we do that because that way we can keep supporting this first fabrication. Yeah. That's the whole reason. Yeah. And that's why we create things like one world consciousness, one mind consciousness, or an ongoing mm -hmm. series of human lives. Right. How else do you establish permanence in the ego self, but with endless human lives? Mm -hmm. And it's such an appealing to that mind. The it's reason why easier, that is yeah. so easy, easily believed by almost every human being is because that's the only way to establish permanence. Yeah. So we, you know, 
we did, human beings weren't born with organized, I'm not, I'm not putting down organized religions. Many people get, get a lot of benefit and peace and all that. But the reason why we created these things is because we wanted a solution to impermanence, a permanent. I was told that if I did all the things right, this is from my Roman Catholic upbringing, that if I, you know, if I was lucky enough to get to heaven, I would be sitting at God's right hand forever. Well, that's that thought scared the hell out of me. Because one, I mean, you know, I want to go fishing and chasing girls. I don't want to be sitting at, I mean, you know, so. But that wasn't my idea of permanence, was it? Uh, my idea of permanence was always going fishing and chasing girls. Yeah. And I always wondered when, when in the Navarra Sutta, when um, when he starts on his his thought process, that he begins with birth. And mm -hmm. I never quite understood that. Now you do. Now I see that it's the birth of this perceiver. Yes. That's what's going yeah, on. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with physical birth. No, nothing. no. But I, I couldn't link it with anything else. But, but now it's there. Yeah. And that looking at birth that way makes it easier to follow his thinking in the rest of the Nagara Sutra. Yes, you have to uh, understand I, I, that. I've had trouble with that, yeah. uh, but I'm going to go through it again. Even though you've heard me say it a million times, what are we giving birth to in this moment? <sighs> Finally. <laughs> Thank you, Dollar Teacher. Now I teach you, David. John. What are you doing over there? It doesn't I don't seem know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I'm all confused here. Uh, intellectually, what Ram described is able to be understood by all. But the insight to that can only be found by developing you know, concentration. And then that refined mindfulness. And that's where the insight it's only meaningful if you experience it yourself. It, you it's know? just sitting at the bar talk yeah. or, or in a sangha. But the twice a day isn't just to you know create a practice, it's for that insight. Yeah. The purpose of it is that insight. And then you take it off the cushion, you, you see it in everyday life, what Matt was describing. What, what we all experience, you know, that delusion becomes a little more clear. And, you know, you understand why you're creating this fake thing, this anatta. And it, the whole purpose of it is that insight. So, that is, the whole purpose is insight into, into this one thing. Sometimes we, we call it greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, but it really isn't for this. What am I doing in this moment? What am I making of myself? Because it's up to me. It's up to each and every human being what we're going to make of our lives. But you can't really make much of a life unless you're present for it, can you? And present moment by moment by moment. Thank you, David. Now I teach you math. John, thank you. Ram. Hey, yeah, I forgot you're supposed to be turning this thing. Um, Matt, I said, I'm sorry, do you, is it okay if I get you on camera? Some people don't want to be, and I understand that. So. They don't want to be associated with this motley crew here. I, uh, I really like this class tonight, and I really like hearing what, what, what everyone's talked about. 
um, uh, Drake and what everyone was saying. Thank you, John. Thank you, Matt, for everything. I'm a teacher, Kevin. Hey, John. Um, thank you for the class. I, I think there was something of value in sort of what Matt said about this deconstruction of Anata and sort of the moment where we recognize the laying down of conceit and, you know, attaching to the world willfully and, and instead of this, as we talk about a lot, restraint and allowing the permanent phenomenon, aka the world, to attach to us or not attach to us on its own. And, and that's that's what happens in life. It's, it's the extra or this seeking to put ourselves out there when it's not needed because, right. you know, we have a world that we exist in and, and we can refer to and we have this, that's the reference point, the Anatai. We can see ourselves, you know, and and say, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not who I am, as opposed to before we came to this practice, it was, this is me, this is mine, everything. every single thing that I see, everything yeah. that I smell, that I think about, that someone tells me that... Your relationships? You know, yeah, it's it's all... Based on ownership. But... Yeah, it really is shocking to see, like, wow, that's that's how... The world lives or i used to live or i used to have to think that, that it's it's pretty arrogant pretty conceit conceit's a good word and that's a deep word that we don't really come across too often unless you're with someone that really knows you it's going to tell you you're conceited <laughs> where's that word come unless from? you read my books well, right yeah. you're the only one that even will bring that word up and it's it's a it's a word that we purposefully bury we don't even want to yeah. You know, somebody's never going to tell us we're conceited. That, yeah. That's the ultimate. Well, you know, no way. Yeah. You can't be right. It's, yeah. it's a, it, there's a big aversion to that. So we have to be really honest in, in how conceited we are. Yeah. And an ego person, thank you, Donald Teacher Kevin. An ego personality can't be anything but conceited. That's the whole point of an ego personality. Um, and we learn through the Dhamma that we don't have to be ruled by that anymore. So there's liberation found within the Dhamma, and it is liberation from just what we've been talking about, from wrong ideas of self, which is how most human beings live their lives. And uh, I found it uh, very disappointing. And, uh, even though I was living, a, you know, a, a, from outwardly a, a fairly successful life, um, you know, I had a good business that I built up and I had a, uh, had the trophy wife and all this stuff and new car every year for a couple of years. And I was just miserable and I was miserable because it was never enough. I, I remember for, I think it was two or three years in a row that I bought a new car until I realized how ridiculous that was. Every time I drove off the lot, I had this thought, I'm losing 20%. But my thought was only about the money I was losing. It wasn't about how foolish it was to think you had to buy a new car every year just because you could afford it. But I was, again, I was living the American dream and I was miserable. I was more miserable then than I've ever been, I think. And this was after I quit drinking and drugging. Um, and then I started getting into Buddhism and I became even more confused 
but my mood about myself lightened because I think I thought I was doing something good. And all I found was it was a, um, a congenial distraction, uh, but rather anything that was going to bring me understanding. And again, it wasn't until I started practicing this that all that changed. Um, and, you know, sometimes I, I don't know if the right word is marvel how the present moment is just the most meaningful thing I've ever experienced, but it is because, and it, why? Because I'm here for it. Um, that's all I have to say about that. Anybody have any other questions or comments? So we'll pick up um, week two on this chapter on Saturday. So please join me. Um, and we'll finish with meta as we always do. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the words of the Buddha from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is the Buddha's description of an awakened human being, fully mature human being. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not prouder than manning in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision and being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. See you all Saturday. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.